traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Simon Long, finance and economics editor at The Economist. Coming up, how billions of people's lives have been transformed by access on demand to whatever entertainment they want. Facebook is winning. YouTube is winning. Disney is winning. If you're you're not a big social platform, you have to have a big brand. And Nick Bloom from Stanford University outlines the findings of his report into the gap in salaries paid by big and small companies. There's a great study that looks at Italian textile weavers in the 1880s, so about 140 years ago, and shows that even back then, large firms paid about 50% more than small firms. But to start, a quiz question. Which big central bank is in the throes of an interest rate tightening cycle? America's Federal Reserve is a safe bet as an answer, of course. But as of last week, it was joined by the People's Bank of China. So far, the Chinese tightening has garnered much less attention, and that's understandable. The moves have been smaller and more tentative. But they still mark an important shift in China's management of the economy. I'm joined now from Shanghai by our Asia economics editor, Simon Rabinovich. So, Simon, as as I understand it, we're seeing uh, what you might call new developments in Chinese monetary policy. Could you describe what exactly they are? Sure. So over over the past couple of weeks, the uh, the Chinese central bank, the PBOC, um, has raised a series of, of money market rates of short term, effectively interest rates. It it all sounds very technical. It's rates that go by the name uh, standing lending facility or, or medium term lending facility. But when when you get past the the technical side of it, you know what it is is it's the first real tightening by the PBOC of monetary policy uh, since 2013. It's a very mild signal of tightening at this point. It's it's not the benchmark interest rates, but it is uh, it does appear at least to be the beginning of a tightening cycle. And what might the next steps be? Well, everybody, of course, is in wait-and-see mode. Uh, the PBOC has started off very, very softly. And, and the reason it's going softly, of course, is that if you look at the economy as a whole, uh, growth is still slowing. Things look like they're beginning to, to shift downward a little bit. At the same time, you've had incredibly rapid credit growth. Uh, there's a lot of concern about the property market being in, in bubble-like territory. Uh, the bond market as well has a lot of leverage that has uh, seeped into it over the past two years. So you've got this on the one hand, uh, the economy softening, but on the other hand, a lot of leverage, a lot of concern about asset bubbles. And so the PBOC seems to be trying to deal with the latter without causing too much uh, damage or harm to, to the economy as a whole. You mentioned the credit cycle and how much credit there is out there. How worried are they about raising interest rates and, and causing a series of defaults? So that, that's certainly one of the reasons that they're going to be moving very slowly on raising interest rates. They, they want to see deleveraging take place. They want to see uh, financial institutions, which have been going very heavily into the bond market, pull back their horns a little bit. But at the same time, uh, you know, overall debt is about 250% of GDP. So if they were to raise rates too quickly, uh, it could be very damaging. It'd be damaging for growth as well. Uh, this politically is a very sensitive year with the, the big party Congress at the end of the year uh, when they'll rotate all, all or most top officials. 
So certainly the you know number one item on the agenda is to maintain overall economic stability. So it would be surprising to see them have an aggressive tightening cycle. But clearly the balance of risk right now, as far as they're concerned, has tipped towards there being too much leverage and too much debt. And so they're beginning to, to try to tackle that, you know, however gradually. You mentioned also concerns about property prices. I mean, if the tightening or hints at tightening are so mild, are they likely to have any effect on property, the property market at all? The property market doesn't necessarily respond to interest rates in China the same way it might in a more developed market. So uh, with the property market, they've been taking much more kind of targeted administrative steps, uh, limiting uh, you know the amount of mortgages that banks can lend out, forcing home buyers to pay higher down payments. And so taking kind of very kind of crude measures, if you will, to try to uh, take a bit of air out of the property market. So they, they, they probably will continue to do that for a while, and they could always re- relax that if they need to. You know, interestingly, at the same time as them tightening interest rates, if you actually look at credit growth, according to reports so far, uh, January will have been a record month for new bank lending. So the, you know, the price of money is going up in China, but the quantity of money is increasing uh, at quite a rapid clip. So it's it's still a very much kind of mixed message from the authorities. Uh, and they're trying to, like I say, you know, deflate the bubble without uh, without necessarily popping it. Simon Rabinovich, thank you very much. So what do you think about prospects for Chinese monetary policy? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. One of the great benefits of technological progress is supposed to be that it's democratised entertainment, distributing to the masses delights once reserved for the elites. More high-quality entertainment is available to more people on the planet than ever before. And at the same time, individuals across the globe can find an audience much more easily than was previously possible. Digital access to whatever entertainment people want on demand has changed the lives of billions. Gaddy Epstein's The Economist's media editor and has written a special report in this week's Economist on the entertainment industry. He joins me now from New York. Gaddy, your, your report uses the phrase the attention economy. What does that mean? Well, the attention economy is about the competition amongst the various platforms, social platforms we use, big media companies like Disney, uh, the various modes of entertainment, including live, like UFC, for that limited attention, the little resource that we have, uh, our attention. Uh, The point of my special report is that despite the fact that there is an unlimited amount of entertainment available to us, or virtually unlimited, thanks to the internet and smartphones uh, for billions of people, we still only have so much time and so much attention span. And so it has come down to a competition for a few minutes of our time on device each day, or in the case of a TV show, maybe 30 minutes or an hour. That is the attention economy. And it's a simple question, difficult answer, I imagine, but who's winning? I mean, is it that the industry is getting more and more fragmented and we're all watching different things, or are there still forces of scale that mean blockbusters still, still win out? The latter, for sure. Uh, the economies of scale have worked in favor of, and the network effects of, of large social platforms have worked in their favor. So uh, Facebook is winning. YouTube is winning. Disney is winning. If you're, if you're not a big social platform, you have to have a big brand to break through the cluttered marketplace to get people's 
uh, attention. And this is something that Disney figured out about uh, 12 years ago when they decided, when Bob Iger decided to start going on his buying spree, buying Pixar and then Marvel and then Lucasfilm. His, they made a big bet on blockbusters and making fewer films. And now they dominate the box office. Uh, last year, there were thousands of films released worldwide and um, more than 700 in the U.S. in cinemas. The top five movies globally in box office were all Disney films. And Disney's handful of films were made up about a fifth of uh, total global box office. So it was, it, the attention economy has skewed uh, our interests towards, and, our, and our dollars uh, towards blockbuster hits. So my hope that I could retire, make my fortune by distributing YouTube videos of our cat, who is so clever, by the way, that she uses our toilet, that hopes in vain, is it? Because I'm just a small player. You know, that sounds like a very entertaining cat, so you might have a chance. The, the, the truth is that it's like, it's like playing the lottery. So now that lottery is available to you. That's what the Internet uh, has given us, is the chance. Uh, before, in the 1950s or 60s, there'd be no chance for your cat going to the bathroom to uh, make any money for you, at least not outside your neighborhood. Now you have a chance. And, for instance, there's a, there's a kid named Ryan uh, on the Internet whose parents started filming him opening boxes of toys, you know, like Disney toys, for instance, at first. And they started a YouTube channel. They just uploaded them to YouTube. And it became a massive hit. And they are making millions of dollars. And in fact, for the last 20 weeks of 2016, they were the number one most watched YouTube channel uh, in America. And one of the most, like, one top one or two channels in the world many of those weeks. So you can win uh, with your uh, your multi-talented cat, but it is like winning a lo- winning the lottery. The real winner is the platform that hosts you. So YouTube wins either way. How about the music industry, Gaddy? Is it the same there that there are millions and millions of songs we all choose from, but we tend to choose the same ones? That's right. That's right, Simon. Uh, in fact, uh, we have many millions more songs. It's much easier to get a to put a song on offer but it's much, much harder to be discovered. So, for instance, uh, in the digital marketplace of just individual music, uh, song, individual song tracks sold, like, you know, iTunes, there's been a, a huge increase in the number of individual different songs that are sold each year. Uh, in 2007, there were almost 4 million songs. In 2016, there were 8.7 million different songs that actually sold at least one copy in America. The problem is that the number of songs that sold more than 100 copies has remained virtually the same at around 350,000. Meanwhile, 96% of those 8.7 million songs sold less than 100 copies. And 40%, 3.5 million songs, or almost as many as were sold in, in their entirety in 2007, sold just one copy, presumably uh, the artist's mother or spouse. So it's very hard to be discovered. Now, algorithms, uh, recommendation algorithms on, on various, you know, platforms like Spotify or in the case of, like, watching TV like Netflix uh, make this worse because they tend to push to you the, sam- the songs or videos or, that everybody else likes, the, the popular hits. Spotify has tried to address this uh, with a very elegant algorithm uh, that they use to create a playlist each week called Discover Weekly uh, where they push to you... 30 uh, songs, almost always uh, unfamiliar songs, ones that you haven't heard, based on comparing your playlist with billions of other playlists available to find 
the songs that are listed on both, but ones that you likely haven't heard. So you'll tend to receive uh, most of those 30 songs will be ones you've never heard before. And so that is a way to try and push the unfamiliar to you. And that is a ray of hope that technology will, will help uh, consumers find a rare gem that, that uh, hadn't been discovered before. Gary Epstein, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Time now for the last in our series of special reports from the American Economic Association Conference held last month in Chicago. One of the speakers was Nick Bloom, a professor in the Department of Economics at Stanford University. His latest research has been to study the difference in salaries paid by big and small companies. Our economics correspondent, Samaya Keynes, began by asking him what was thinking about this subject before publication of his paper. There's an amazing uh, stylized fact, which is if you look at large firms, they've uh, over a century have paid more than small firms. So there's a great study that looks at Italian textile weavers in the 1880s, so about 140 years ago, and shows that even back then, large firms paid about 50% more than small firms. And that has been true all the way through to the 1980s, beginning of the 1980s. What we looked at is what's happened since then. And it turns out what's called the large firm pay premium has collapsed. It's fallen by about two thirds. So to give you some rough numbers, if you went from a firm with about 100 employees to about 10,000 employees, your pay would have increased by about 50% in 1980, whereas now it's gone up by about 15%. So a, 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 big, a big reduction of the pay premium for large firm employees. When you dig into the weeds of what exactly is going on, what do you think is driving this? It, you know, it's, uh, it's not obvious what's driving this. There's at least two stories I like and, and others that people have suggested. But, you know, my two favorite uh, explanations for this, one is, I think, the rise of outsourcing. So if you think of, you know, the 1980s, the kind of thing we'd see is janitors, secretaries, security guards, a lot of kind of middle to low, you know, low to middle skilled employees in big firms got a huge pay premium. So, you know, if you're a janitor, you really wanted to work at General Electric in 1980 rather than a small company. Now, roll it forward 35 years. If you've still got your job there, you're under immense pressure because of outsourcing and, you know, the firm has screwed down your wages and you're now earning probably not much more than the market. So, you know, outsourcing has kept massive pressure. The other story, I think, is the increased pressure on managers to cut costs. So in big firms, if they're publicly listed, they're under intense scrutiny via the stock markets. And if they're privately held, there's the, you know, the threat of private equity hanging over their shoulder all the time. And unless they cut costs and benchmark, they, uh, you know, managers and CEOs find themselves kicked out. And I think that's fed through to big companies looking at the cost they pay and if they're above market rates, pushing back down on them. And again, that's meant that large firm weight premium has evaporated. How is this contributing to kind of overall inequality in the economy? Well, what we see is in large firms, the people have really lost out, the people with middle and lower incomes. So within large firms, we've seen a big increase in inequality. So everyone, everyone's heard of the top end. These are the, uh, you know, the famous CEOs and CFOs who are making massive pay packets on Wall Street uh, and you know, the city of London and the, you know, around the world. But what we also see is the middle and lower ranked employees are seeing their wages falling. And so, of course, there's a big gulf opening up. In our data, we see that top employees in 10,000-plus firms in the U.S. have seen their wages go up by about 150% since 1980. And the bottom 10% has seen them fall by about 20%. So a huge gap has opened up, and that's 
far greater in large firms than in small firms. And the bottom end collapse is driven by this disappearance of the large firm wage premium. So you know, big firms seem to play an important role in explaining overall inequality. What fraction of the labour force do these big firms account for? L- large firms, you know, very few in number. So there are only a thousand companies in America with more than ten thousand employees, and there's a, you know about a hundred, I think, in the UK. But they account for a huge share of the population. So one quarter of all Americans work for firms with ten thousand or more employees. One half of all Americans work for firms with a thousand or more employees. I'm guessing, you know, most of your listeners work for firms with more than a thousand employees, and these are the types of companies where. Outsourcing and competitive pressure has really pushed down on the salaries of secretaries, security guards, cleaners, you know, low-level ma- uh, managers, clerks. They still have their jobs in the company. They're paid a lot less than they were 30 years ago. What should policymakers do in response to this finding? The, this, you know, this is a very hard thing to deal with it, it, because what's going on is market pressures and pressures that actually policymakers, to some extent, have pushed onto firms because order the regulation to make managers more responsive to shareholders and do the best interest of shareholders has actually meant that they've looked for cost savings and cost savings has meant cut wages. So the way to get around it is try and help people whose wages are low to earn more by improvement in education. But, you know, the the best single solution is training for people in the labor force now and improving education. What we want to avoid is, you know, large shares of the workforce having left school at, say, 16, that are really struggle to earn more than you know, min- minimum wage. Because increasingly, large firms represent the market. So in a sense, 30 years ago, if you got a job in a big firm, you were to some extent protected. That's just no longer true. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Samir Keynes talking to Stanford's Nick Bloom about the difference in salaries paid by big and small companies. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.